Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Liz Power, Director of the London Museum of Water and Steam. We discuss their excellent reopening video and how they drove their summer visitor numbers sky high by focusing on their local community. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. All right, Liz, welcome to Skip the Queue. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure and I'll tell you why it's my pleasure in a little while. But first, icebreaker questions. So if there was a zombie apocalypse, which three people would you want on your team? And they can be friends or celebs. Well, Well, famous, not celebs. Well, see, for years and years, me and my husband had a zombie apocalypse plan when we lived over in, in Wimbledon that we'd meet at the windmill on the common. And so we would, we like, before we had children, we, we had this actual zombie apocalypse plan. Wow. So I think I'm going to take him because, um, you know, he's in on the plan already. And um, I think it's completely rational to have a zombie apocalypse plan. Um, so... Yeah. Completely. Um, so I'll have him because he, he's good. And then who else would I have? I mean, I, I basically want somebody who knows a lot about zombies. Uh, there's not many of those around. Maybe maybe I'll just take like any mortician. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because they're used to handling the dead and it's not the zombie's fault that they're trying to eat our brains. So maybe they would handle the zombie relationships while I do fighting i love this i I like that you felt so in depth about this um and now i feel like i need to put my own zombie apocalypse plan together (laughs) everyone needs one everyone (laughs) okay all right if you could if you could eliminate one food so that no one ever had to eat it ever again what would you destroy without a doubt it is celery i mean it is obnoxious horrible does nothing for you just the presence of it in a space stinks it out I, I can spot it in a in a mixed up food a hundred miles um it is the filthy devil's food and eating it would kill you if you ate nothing else so like the world could live without it it's very much mos- the mosquito of the food world celery yeah, yeah. everyone would be delighted nobody would beat me for that great okay good this is exactly how I feel about peas. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's similar. <laughs> similar, similar. Is maybe, maybe we could do both on a two-for-one offer. I'm all down for that. Celery has no part in my life. No, nor mine. Nor okay. anybody's in the 70s, I'm sure. But anyway, still, still should be banned. <laughs> all right. And final one. What is the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, right. So, so I have three children. And um, my, my daughter turned two the day after my twins were born. And um, it was unbelievable chaos for the last, well, I don't know, for the, la- for the last eight years, to be honest. But like, particularly the first kind of six months. And at, at one point, I, I cried on a, on a health visitor and said, because they were just like, would just scream and hit. And it was, oh, there were such, such messy little creatures. And I, and I said to her, like, you know, was it ever going to be like this or forever? There's, you know, 
had I ruined everyone's lives, had I ruined my daughter's life by bringing these two horrible screaming babies into her world. And she said to me, they are learning about relationships in the safety of your love. Oh, that's lovely. And it's like the best bit of advice. And I probably reference it about, you know, three times a week because even though they're now, you know, 10 and 8, my boys are 8, it's still chaotic and it's still, you know, argumentative. And this morning they had an argument over jumpers. I mean, it is that. But they are going to just be the best humans. They're going to make the best friends. They're going to have the best relationships because they're learning about that in complete safety. Um, so that that's what reassures me when it all goes horrifically wrong. Oh, my God, that is so special. What a, That's a really lovely gift that she gave you with that with that saying, yeah. isn't it? And, and I was at a very, very low point and it was just, just gave me enough to keep going, you know, that I hadn't ruined everything. Not that you can choose to have twins, but like, it just, it just felt like I'd just blown everything apart. She was like, no, this is, this is, this is for their good. Oh, and it is, it is for their good. Hats off to you. Cause I'm juggling a four month old right now and that's tough enough. So well done you. <laughs> All right. What is your unpopular opinion? I've been thinking about this because I have so many opinions, um, but I, I tend have a tendency to think I'm right. So I think they're all popular. But um, I thought of one particularly for museums. You know, we, we have so many museums in this country that, that worries me. You know, we just have so many. And uh, I'm not sure that, you know, every single museum in the country is viable. So I think my pop, unpopular opinion should be that if we're going to have to make choices about which museums we can sustain, as a country then we should make it purely based on which ones have mannequins or not (laughs) get rid of every single mannequin museum if you have a mannequin i don't care how pretty it is it must go the things are terrifying horrific maybe we'd have an amnesty and give everyone 12 months to get rid if they wanted and then anybody who were like no my mannequin must stay i'm like "Mm." I don't mind like a headless one to display clothing, but like the ones that are like, um, just like, like a kind of actual person, uh, horrific. And when I worked at the transport museum, there was one, you know, transport museum, I love it dearly, but they definitely have to close or get rid of the mannequins. Uh, There's one there that that is actually modeled on Sam Mullins, the director. And, And so like, it's even more horrific. And then, then in their store in Acton, there's just trains full of random mannequins. I mean, it's horrible. Quite spooky having a mannequin of yourself, isn't it? That's a bit creepy. So, but where would all the mannequins go, though? There would just be well, like a landfill of like weird, manne- creepy mannequins. No, no we, we'd burn. Okay. Yeah, we'd burn. Yeah. <laughs> because we're, you know, very uh, industrious in museums, we'd probably sell tickets to the bonfire. Um, <laughs> We'd burn all the mannequins that are given over in the amnesty and, uh, you know, and the museums that don't comply, that is it. No more of your museum. You just have to be. Although I think that's probably going to turn out to be an incredibly popular opinion. I think it might as well. Let's find out, listeners. Can you let us know how you feel about the burning of the mannequins? (laughs) I I think it just feels right. I just I, I don't know how you object to it. It's so good. Also, let me know if you buy a ticket for that as well. I'm intrigued. (laughs) I'll get that Arts Council application on the go right now. (laughs) Liz, thank you for that. Uh, Okay, I've had so many wonderful unpopular opinions this season already. I just, yeah, where you pull them from, I just do not know. Um, 
right tell us a little bit about the London Museum of Water and Steam uh, well, of course, everyone has visited, but just for the couple of people that have never been, uh, we are a very small micro museum over in West London, and we're based at Kew Bridge train station, um, but actually in Brentford in Hounslow, um, and we are a historic site. Uh, and we have 200 years of water pumping history and the impact it has on London. So we have a collection of static steam engines. We have a small, really small narrow gauge loco that runs around our site. Um, and we are a community museum. So we're really focused on what we can do for our local community. That's a massive part of what we do. And then the other part of what we do is uh, our visitor profile is the classic split of the under fives and the enthusiasts. Um, so it's a it's a really unusual place and um, massive plug for everyone to come and visit and come and see me because everyone goes oh yes I know the standpipe tower so if you've ever sat on the traffic queuing for the M40 with that big tower uh, that you're like oh I don't know what that is yeah that's us Um, and it's a standpipe tower not a chimney so come educate yourself because um, everyone's like, oh, I've queued past so many times. Uh, so, yeah, that's us. That's the water and steam. Oh, I love it. That was a very good synopsis. Um, and you mentioned community. We're going to come back to that because that's what we want to talk about on today's podcast. But listeners, as you know, I um, I basically stalk people on Twitter and LinkedIn and various <laughs> social media platforms and ask them to come on the podcast. So I'm always looking out for interesting guests, interesting stories. And I have been stalking Liz for a little while, actually, after I saw their rather brilliant reopening video that the museum produced. Now, this was when the museums were allowed to reopen after the first wave of pandemic. I know we are still in it. But I thought it was such a great example of one, a video that was on brand. It was really fun, really authentic. And I'm going to say really inexpensively made. And I just thought... (laughs) I just thought it was perfect. It was such a lovely way of kind of uh, showcasing to your visitors or potential visitors that that it was a safe place to come. It was really fun. You you really explained visually really well what they could and couldn't do. And I I just think it's it's excellent. I've I've referenced it in many, well, I've referenced it on the podcast. I've referenced it in a few webinars that we've done for ASVA. And I just think it's, it's banging. So can you just to talk us through the process of how you did it? I will put the link to the video in the show notes. So if you haven't seen it, you can have a watch. Oh, thanks. Um, so we were fully furloughed as a staff from April the 1st, including myself. So we weren't allowed to work. That didn't stop you attending webinars. And so um, myself and the, the team were attending anything we could do to just like feel like we still had a, a job. Um, and one of the webinars, we heard Bernard Donoghue, who I know you've had on before, talk about how a reopening video would be an important part of reopening. Um, and we didn't have any money or any budget or anything, but we have enthusiasm and a uh, incredible ability to chuck ourselves into having a go at anything. And I just kind of, I just thought we could do it. Like, and I looked at some of the ones that other people were like making and I was like, yeah, do you know what? It doesn't look that hard. (laughs) 
so we got we filmed it on my iPhone because I've I had the newest phone of the team <laughs> so that that's how that choice was made um and myself and uh Gemma who um you know we only have three three staff majoritively so there's you know the two of us filmed it together and we we wrote a little script and we filmed it in order so we'd find it easier to edit and uh, we filmed it we didn't have a microphone didn't have anything um and then we um took a few takes of a few things but pretty much did it short and sharp under a minute long we knew the messages we wanted to get across about space and fun that's my favorite bit the space bit is my favorite bit there's so much space and it but it's filmed from really far away so it sounds like you've got loads of space as well and I was like this is in our garden yeah and so um and then we use some free editing software to bring it together. And then um, my friend Vicky Pipe, who is the manager of the amazing Bow Street Police Museum, uh, check that out, um, who's a brilliant editor. Uh, and she's Vicky Explores on Twitter. And she um, did a tighter edit for me and put some music over the top. And uh, that was it. And then, I, then we did a really important thing. And I know this sounds silly, but I lost all sense of shame. And I set up a WhatsApp group, which was absolutely everybody I knew who I thought would retweet it for me. And I sent out a WhatsApp group to them and said a message to them all saying, I really need your help. Good news. I'm not asking for money. All I'm asking for is a retweet. Can you retweet my video when I bring it out next week? Um, And sent them a little preview. And then everyone did, uh, including the the amazing scummy mummies who retweeted it uh, for me. And they've got a massive following. And so it really got out into the world, which is fantastic. And anyway, so we loved it so much that we made another one for October uh, when we reopened so that was our outdoor spaces when we reopened our indoor spaces and this time I wrote to my kids to star in it and we did exactly the same process and for us it worked really well like when we had had to close all of our engagement with our audience had gone onto social media and there was there was nothing else we could do we were furloughed you know we were really tired but we have always been really open with our visitors and our community about who we are um as an organization but also as individuals so it's really not unusual for our social media to to like feature us messing around or us just talking about our lives or like it's not my kids first appearance like it is very much you know in community work you have to give so you can receive and and it it fitted our brand because if we could suddenly had come out with something that was so slick they'd all gone what they said they had no money well we haven't got any money (laughs) so we have to film it like this like it fits like this is us, this is me and Gemma, we're the people you will meet. Um, and so it just, in every way, it fitted what we did and it was so well received and it really held its own against people who spent a lot of money on theirs and we spent, for the record, nothing. Amazing. Yeah, and I, I love that. And I think that's part of, you know, seeing these, seeing the pandemic has forced people to be more innovative and be more creative with the budget that they've got, which was zero, and to do things like this. And I think... One of the nice things that you mentioned is about, you know, you were in it and your children were in it. And it was if people are going to visit, they're going to meet those people. And that brings me back to that community aspect that I want to talk about, because you've you've had a really, really successful summer. And this was something that I saw on Twitter a little while ago. So you posted and again, I'll reference this in the show notes, but you posted up a graph 
your tweet said the gray are the numbers we expected yellow is what we had before and blue is what we got and basically the numbers were phenomenal they were far over what you were predicting like far over and you said this had all come about because you'd focused on your local community I want to know what you did so you've got your summer 2021 results are, are pretty phenomenal talk us through how they how you got them because they were so much better than what you expected so much better and I just want to say that halfway through the summer I had uh, failed the basic mantra of know your numbers and was in the pit of despair unknowing if we were doing well or not and then I was like actually power sort yourself out just count the numbers up and have a look and we were doing so well um so we had forecast that we would get 25 percent of our normal visitor numbers now now for a sense of scale we are tiny <laughs> so if we get over 200 visitors we're emergency going to sainsbury's to get more loo roll <laughs> sense of scale um but we had forecast 25 percent, and we were smashing it absolutely smashing it we are very lucky in Brentford where we sit. We're surrounded by people. So we're overlooked by this, um, the Brentford Towers Housing Estate, which is a high rise accommodation, high density. Um, and then we have new build flats all the way around us. And that's why in the summer of 21, we had, uh, in summer of 20, we had decided to open this outdoor space because to be brutally honest, nobody needed a static steam engine at that point in their life. Did they need a place to play with their kids? Absolutely. So we did that instead. And so when it came to, came to this summer, what we really wanted to do was kind of take that same approach and feel and bring it into the museum. And just like to all the new people we met last summer, to all the new people we've met since we reopened in May, like come to the museum and just we want it treated like a park. We want people to feel like they can come time and time again, have a play, that kind of feel. So when we had opened, when, I don't know what you call the October opening, almost open. When we'd almost opened in October um, and done the half term, and then again when we reopened in May, the first thing we did before we let the public in is have a week of community opening where we invited all of our local community groups in to have the space for themselves, get them back through the door, um, just kind of build up those relationships. Um, and we'd had some funding for the from the council over the autumn of 21 um, called for a project we called Sharing Spaces. Sounds really posh, but what they actually did was pay for a duty manager and a cleaner so that we could open the museum, not for the public, but for community work because we were a large space. And so, you know, we, we were ventilated and groups could meet inside and particularly for the the local communities work we do with people with autism like having a regular meeting place had been really important so it started to kind of snowball all of this work we were doing in the local community you know being being helpful helpful is one of our museum values and so we're like right what would be helpful to do now well Again, still nobody needs a static pumping engine, but they do need a place to come and do a regular craft group or whatever it is. So we had carried on this mantra and then we closed again and gone into that really long lockdown. Um, And then with the help from the Cultural Recovery Fund, we'd we'd been able to open up in May. And 
again focus on the community groups what can we do that is helpful um, we've got a brilliant new community uh, partner in the Arban community um, who are a charity who work with young people with learning disabilities and so they're our new cafe and that's really exciting and got all these community groups coming in and out and then we've just got local people and we have we swapped an annual ticket so we are unashamedly a Robin Hood organisation. So, so if you if you travel from uh, Brighton to buy a ticket for the day, we're an expensive day out for you at, at seventeen pounds. If you live next door, we are an absolute bargain. Seventeen quid for the year, coming every week, brilliant. So we had this we knew we'd have people coming time and time again, and annual ticket members bring other annual ticket members, and then. We knew we couldn't do seven days a week. We didn't have the staff. So we consolidated down to, to five days a week. And still, at five days a week, we beat what we had done in, in 2019. Wow. It was just local people because we know them and we see them and we chat to them. And they, you know, help us find the leak buckets when the roof rains. And they, they say things like, are you doing that story again, Liz? And you're like, oh. Yes, I'm doing that story again. You know, so we and we put together a really like a simple program that we felt was manageable and deliverable. We had a good summer, but local people had built this relationship with us, um, which meant that they knew what they were getting. They know know the approach they're getting. We're a friendly place. You really can't go far wrong. Like you know, of course you can touch something. You're going to get covered in oil, but help yourself. Like come in the water play. Just come and sit and chill. Like. You walk a coffee through our museum, it's absolutely fine. We want to be that kind of relaxed environment. And that's just what people needed this summer. We just got it just right for our local people. And I think we've done a lot of listening and a lot of thinking about them. And also a lot of reflecting on our own lives. Like, what do we what do we want this summer? Now, I, I certainly didn't want anything too intense. I wanted a chilled place that made me feel safe and relaxed and happy and that didn't have to go too far. And so that's what we provided for a lot of people in Brentford. So how like, how did you get the word out? So did you did you use a mix? I mean, you, you've obviously got quite a tight knit community around you anyway. So you've got people that would come back and, and visit regularly and, and they're going to spread the word organically for you. Is that what happened or did you go to any other lengths? To, so did you invest in digital, for example? Did you go do any uh, online campaigns or did you do any flyer dropping? Or um, so, uh, so no. Um, we, and so the Culture Recovery Fund money obviously was only for the three months and it ran out before the summer holiday. So we had pre-invested in um, that well-known marketing tool, the banner. So we had two banners uh, out saying what we were doing for the summer. Um, and we use our social media a lot. And so we chat to people and we often say to people, if you, oh, if you want to know what's going on, just follow us on, you know, follow us on Facebook. We've got a big Facebook following, big for us. Um, and so lots of people do follow us on that. But then also we're like really unashamed about it. So um, this half term, we've been doing uh, science shows. And at the end of every science show, we end with an appeal to you know thanking everyone for coming saying that museums will only keep going if we have visitors so it's their homework to go away and tell five people like to help keep us going and so I think a lot of it is word of mouth and just kind of 
the good feeling we can create from being helpful, from being positive. And so you get people who's, you know, maybe child attends a club that meets in the museum or, or you know, maybe they're a carer to somebody, one of the young people who, who does their voluntary work in a cafe or, you know, that kind of good atmosphere. And then that's it. Uh, we, so we didn't have any money for any new marketing um, or leaflets or, or anything like that. So it's simple at the moment until we build our income back up yeah. and are able to put a bit more money behind it. That's phenomenal. To, to have achieved those kind of visitor numbers without actually any additional spend is is pretty Im- impressive. Yeah, I I forgot, I forgot something as well, um, which was before the summer, I did a request out to Thames Water. Um, so Thames Water don't, don't fund us or anything. Um, but, I, you know, I kind of think they, they should. So I, I'd phone them up and ask them that if there was anything they could do for the summer to help us. And their engagement team came down every Wednesday with a bunch of activities. And so we were able to have additional programming for no additional cost. You know, if in doubt, ask. That's excellent. Yeah, and that came out of I was um, I was at um, a, was it training or networking or something, and somebody said, you know, if you need help, ask for help. And I was like, we need help. We need help to put on programming for this summer. Let me ask, and they said yes. That's phenomenal. So, so actually, a big part of it is finding new partners to support you. So it's not it's not just about yeah. relying on on the general public to spread the word. That's one part of it. But the other the other channel is actually if we look at the community and we look at partners that can come and support us. That's another way of developing. Because are you getting new people coming through the door as well? So you talk you talked a lot about your annual visitors, but yeah. are you getting new visitors? You can see that split. Yeah, we can see the split. Um, I, I'm not very good on stats, so I haven't got the stats for you. But yeah, we can see the new people coming in. So um, when I was changing the ticket prices, so in 2019, we had 13 different ticket prices. And uh, to volunteer on our front desk, you basically need a degree in mathematics. <laughs> um, so we simplified it and we now have the classic two ticket prices, adults and concessions. And we made all kids go free because it's such a good line. Um, and I worked out when I was doing the calculations for that ticket change about the percentage of new tickets that we would have coming through the door. And um, I was heavily indebted to the AIM Guides uh, Association of Independent Museums, who are brilliant. I mean, they've got a guide for everything you need. If you want to run a museum, just use that website. And their ticket guide had basically said, if you change to an annual ticket, annual tickets bring other people. And as soon as you read it, you think, oh, do you know what? I've done that. So you get an annual ticket to somewhere and then you say to your friend, I'll tell you what, I've got a ticket to, you know, Kew Gardens. Do you want to meet me there? That would be great. And then you could get a ticket and then the two of us can meet in Kew Gardens and they say to their friend, do you know what? I've got a ticket to Kew Gardens. And that's the word of mouth that comes of that investment in that annual ticket for those families. And, um, you know, we'd had people who'd bought annual tickets at October half term. We're very liberal at just extending those, you know, thanking them for support. Lots of families said, oh, don't be ridiculous, we'll buy a new one, which is lovely. But, you know, tried to make the annual ticket is something that, you're, you know, now you can come every weekend like everyone else. Mm. You can just come and have a play. Or did you know the trains are coming back? Did you know that we've got the model railway or whatever, whatever is coming in, they feel... We are a 
pop in a bull venue and then that's how they kind of spread the word to, to their friends really and start the snowball off and, it, and is this kind of constantly evolving because I guess what just going back to what you mentioned at the start is that you said you know what do, what is it that people need right now they need outdoor space they need somewhere to come with their kids where they can burn off steam and they need it to be you know a calm space so they don't have to worry about anything how does that translate now that the winter's come in are you speaking to the community to find out what it is that they need yeah, so on, on our community work side, so at the moment we're only open to the public at, at weekends during term time, but we're open for the community Thursdays and Fridays, and that's when we're also starting to welcome schools back in, watch this space, um, and also when we have our volunteers come in on, on Thursdays and Fridays. Um, the big request from the community is to open more. Um, I mean, we could fill the building four days a week easily with community work. Um, so that's a real challenge for us to look for sources of income to make that happen. So I have um, a couple of proposals out with uh, corporate donors who I think should help the community by opening our museum for a couple extra days a week. Um, and for them, it would be, in case they're listening, a very low cost investment. You know, so we need we need a dude manager and we need a cleaner. And that's pretty much it you know and some overheads to keep the lights on so we know that's what the community really need they need a dry space they need a ventilated space they need toilets so so that's really really important and then for our kind of our family visitors it's really interesting so half term just gone we had good numbers I was really pleased we beat our 25% target we didn't have as numbers like the summer. What was really interesting, families were saying to me, well, I'm so glad you're not busy. I thought you were going to be busy. Oh. Which I think is fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, an independent museum's worst nightmare that people want to avoid busy places because busy is what we love. Um, but I thought that was really interesting and made me think about kind of the messaging we're going to do this winter. We, we are big we do have plenty of space you can safely navigate our museum without hitting a queue or feeling hemmed in so I I think that we're going to have to think about how we communicate that and how we make sure that we instead of going what is more traditional for us pre-pandemic is October half term is manic and then winter toddles along how can we spread that out so how can we say to our families you know the offer that you love at half term well actually this weekend in november we're also doing some of that so we can spread our visitors out and make them feel safe and secure this winter and safe and secure i think is just about not being busy for them so it's it's going to be a really fine balance yeah it's difficult isn't it it's one of the it's it's a conundrum of and I guess this comes back to a pricing strategy as well, is do you have less visitor numbers, higher price, entry price, but then that's a challenge in terms of the local kind of loyal community that you've built up. You don't want to whack the price up for them, but will yeah. people travel and pay more to come? So, and, and Brentford's um, a very deprived area and Hounslow is not a rich borough. And I'm very aware of... Um, not wanting to kind of price our local community out the museum Mm. and for me working in independent museums as I have for the last kind of 13 years for me it's all about value like demonstrating worth 
So £17 is a lot of money. And some families, you know, for an adult, I can't do the maths quick enough to tell you what it would be for two. Um, And for some families, that is beyond their reach, right? They're, They're never going to be able to afford that. Those families, we will give tickets to for free. That is not lost income for me. They are never coming. <laughs> so I will give them a ticket um, because that is gained love, gained support, gained word of mouth. That, that, that's all pluses for me. It's no loss at all. Um, so in the past, we've given away tickets with the food bank, which has been really good. And we're delighted to see some of those families in. Um, we work very closely with the children's centre who hold a stay and play on a Thursday in term time in our museum. And we, we give tickets away to those families. Um, and all of my duty managers are under strict instructions that if somebody um, arrives with a family and when they're told the price, they say, this is not for us then. And you can tell that those, you know, those families that aren't faking it, they absolutely can let those families in. That's wonderful. That's not lost money. That, that's, that's just total bonus. But it's about demonstrating 17 quid for a lot of people is a big spend. So what are you getting? What's your value for money there? Like, and I always think about the cinema. Like the thing about paying for the cinema is you know how long you're going to be in it. You know what it's going to be like. And you know what it's going to be like when you finish, right? So that's a safe bet for a family. They understand that transaction. And I think the thing with museums is people who aren't museum goers don't understand that transaction. They don't see what they're getting. And so this kind of loops back around to the the film and the social media and the being very open and welcoming community groups in. All we're trying to do is show you what you're going to get, that it's not scary, you're going to meet me and Gemma. You know, it's really fun. Your kid doesn't have to behave. Tantrums are incredibly welcome and totally normal, as is shoplifting from our shop, toddlers running across the car park with a bouncy ball. You know, or you don't have to you don't have to put on your best, you know? I don't I don't want it to be a place where you could feel you can only go if your children are on their best behaviour. We you need us most when your children are at their absolute worst that's when you should feel safe to come to us and you know go god they're having a hideous day water and steam that's what we need let's go get wet in the splash zone doesn't matter if they've got soaked they they keep spare clothes like doesn't matter if they're having a screaming tantrum on the floor liz has got that secret packet of stickers that she gives the screaming kids you know that's that's the kind of safety we want to kind of create and then that means for them that they know that value of that 18 17 quid they really understand what they're getting in return and it and it's a good investment for them and we've just oh we've done this Hounslow Council have given every household a 20 quid voucher like an e-voucher thing and uh, we've signed up and some families have been swapping that for their adult ticket oh that's so yeah, it's absolutely brilliant because like, you know, 17 quid, you could spend it at lots of different shops in Hounslow and, and restaurants and things. But like if they spend it with us, they get something that lasts all year. Um, so that's been wonderful to see that coming through. That's really smart. Liz, I don't think that you could have sold a trip to this museum any better than you just did. <laughs> <laughs> it's just perfect. It's perfect. I'm bringing Edie. I'm bringing Edie. Yeah, do, do it. Bring her when you're having a rubbish day. I'll, I'll happily cuddle a baby for you. Excellent. I'll, I'll take that. I'll definitely take you up on that. Um, Liz, what is next for the museum? So we talked a little bit about how your offering is going to change slightly, slightly and, and 
that obviously there is still a nervousness from people and, and they want to know that they're going to have enough space and be safe over the over the summer months. What comes next? We, we've got to work out how to grow. Okay, so we, we have, we've luckily not had to make anyone redundant, but we haven't replaced anyone who's left. Uh, and so I think we've kind of been in survival mode quite a long way. But I wrote a business plan in 2019 and I've got to trash it because we've leapt so far forward and everything we wanted to do. So that's fantastic news. So there's a bit of kind of structural replanning that needs to happen, um, thinking about, you know, our business plan going forward. And then how do we grow back to where we were? Like, how do we get back to the staffing levels? And, and then how can we do more for our community? So we're just about to advertise for a volunteer coordinator part-time, if you'd like to come and work with me. Um, so that is going to be a really big thing for us. And we need to build our volunteer team back. That's incredibly important. We have started um, a year's worth of work working on young volunteering, uh, people who are young people who are long term neat, uh, volunteering the museum. So I'm just trying to explore every version of volunteering possible because I think we're a fantastic resource for skills and all the rest of it. I've having conversations with all sorts of people that that might be able to you know make volunteering look different for us uh, so that's really exciting um and then we, we're again thinking about what our our community needs so i want to do some work on our outdoor spaces which are before the pay line so we have we're very lucky we've got a beautiful garden with like frogs and uh, a playhouse and uh, more children's watering cans than you've ever seen but there's a space at the back that I'm hoping that I am going to be able to redevelop into a wild play space that could be used by the local community for wild play and forest school, something that's kind of lacking in Brentford. Um, I'd like to get open more because I think we need to be doing more community work. Um, So again, as you can see, these things are about kind of what can we look for funding to take our work forward while maintaining our core work of, of the work we do with, with communities and the work we do with our, our kind of our visitors who come in all the time. So slowly, slowly nudging forward and always just being really honest with people about where we are and just explaining, you know, we can't do everything and the things we can't do, explain why we can't do them. And then just the things we can do, being enthusiastic and going for it. And we try to have an attitude of promising to everyone that will say no if we can't do something. Because in some cultures, saying no is perceived as incredibly rude. So people don't ask because they're worried they're going to put a burden on you. And so we want to have the opposite. So we, we operate on a promise to say no. So you may as well ask because, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to feel I have to do something. Yeah. Um, so kind of continuing to listen and respond to the community and just try to be the most helpful responsive reactive museum we can and get our reaccreditation so you know just a couple of things i mean that's not a short list by any means is it Liz? so what we really need those corporate sponsors to get their wallets out get their purses yeah. out and spend some money absolutely like to, to to spend some money and and to think about how they can support the museum because i i the visitor numbers will return and that income will return but it's going to be a, a slow moving thing. Like there's no, there's no rushing that. And I don't know if we'll ever see numbers like we did before the world changed. 
so this is time to think differently and, and think a bit laterally about how can we still achieve what we want to achieve and you know it might work might not work but at least I'm going to try I'm going to try everything yeah I've loved Liz I've really loved speaking to you about this because you can see you know when you talk you can see the enthusiasm that comes through you so I, I just think it would be great I definitely am going to come and visit because it would be so lovely to meet you in person because you kind of it the museum just is you you know you just glow when you talk about it it's really lovely well, I, was, I was very lucky when while I was working so I've, I've only ever worked in museums I've never worked anywhere else and then slowly over the 20 years of careers I've made a list of all the places I would never work uh, which which I might tell you if you come in and have a coffee okay. um, and um, I was really really lucky I was working so much on community engagement in museums and younger people in museums and that's really where I felt my my focus should be is on the social purpose of museums I'm just really lucky that when I went to the interview at Water and Steam and I I pitched them this left-wing community utopia they they went for it and they've trusted in me and backed me I think it's starting to come good yeah it is absolutely right so something else that I want to discuss with you now this is the time in the podcast where I normally ask our guests to give a book recommendation so something that they love something that they've maybe has helped shape their career and when I asked you this you've very yeah I know it was really it was such a valid point and I thought you know what no one's ever said that to me before and nobody's ever raised this as a topic but you basically said that books they're not at the top of your list of things to do because you 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 have dyslexia yeah let's talk about you know the museum and cultural world is extremely academic how do you deal with this? How, what's your what's your strategies? Yeah. I mean, it's super academic, isn't it? And I've got like a terrible degree in drama. Um, so I, I can be a tree, but that's kind of where my <laughs> academia ends. Um, and, and as I made my way through my career, I was very aware that, you know, you just, goodness, people are clever, aren't they? And they've done all sorts of qualifications and all the rest of it. And my idea of hell is doing an MA. Sounds horrific. Same. <laughs> degree in drama was bad enough like I you know I, I can't I, I'm not a studier I hate it like the day I first worked my first job which is at Buckingham Palace I worked in the security team I literally was like oh I'm a worker bee I'm happy I don't want to study I just want to work um and it's not been easy because there is this presumption that you come with this academic background and that you will gain your knowledge about the sector from reading and absorbing this so I could read a textbook on um, museum practice I am not going to remember it I'm not going to be able to take it in and I won't understand the majority of the words so my reading and writing age is about that of a 12 year old and that is not what museum books are written for. Uh, although I am excellent at editing text for exhibitions because 12 is what we should all aim for. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm not a natural museum person like that. I also, I also don't particularly like exhibitions because I find reading hard. And so why would I choose to do that stood up? I mean, like if, I, if I'm going to read and I do read for pleasure... I will be sat somewhere snuggly um, and so I can give my full concentration to it. Certainly not in a room with other people stood looking at a wall. So um, accessing kind of information throughout my career has kind of come from, from two places. First of all, being brutally honest 
about my my abilities and my limitations. So my dyslexia affects my short term memory. It affects my um, processing skills. It obviously affects my reading and writing skills. Uh, you know, if I have to read something, then I need to kind of set aside time to actually do that and, and be in the right environment to, to make myself read it. Um, so my own learning has mainly come from people. I mean, the best source of learning they are, they are the people that write the books after all. So just go talk to the person, skip out the middle page. Um, so I've done a lot of kind of following and networking and chatting to people. I've worked with some extraordinary people and and been so lucky to manage some brilliant people who have really challenged me uh, in what I think and do. And, and if I'm able to kind of share how I need to work. So how if you're going to be managed by me, this is what you need to know. If I'm going to report to you, I mean, my poor trustees, what a learning curve. Um, you know, this is this is how this information will be coming to you. And uh, best of luck deciphering this. So I do do written reports, but it's they will quite often say, well, we'll have a verbal report on that. And we'll have a verbal report on that. And we only do kind of one basic written report for like our board meetings. And that's majoritively kind of bullet points and things like that. So they kind of adapted to to, to my issues. But the massive, massive plus side, and the reason I wouldn't turn off my dyslexia, even if I could, is so, so, you know, you choose me to be part of the team, you get all that hard work, but you also get an, an incredible dyslexic superpower, which is that I can see something complete. I can see what water and steam will be. Not might be, not could be, but will absolutely be. I can see the people walking through the door. I can see the interactions. And then what I can do once I can see something, I can take it apart and work out how to get there. And I didn't realize this was a superpower until a, a, a former line manager said to me once, oh, you know, you have three good ideas a year, Liz, and that's what we keep you around for. I said, like, yeah, I do, actually. Like, okay, but my ideas come fully formed um and and that's really unusual to go i have a fully formed vision of this and i woke up the other day and i had a fully formed vision of how i would revolutionize sports engagement for the under 16s i mean god's sake uh, is there nothing that you can't do liz no, well, I'm not going to do it. But I was like, <laughs> seriously, brain, could you just switch off? So that that's the plus side of my dyslexia is that I see things in a very different way to a lot of people. And then I have ability to kind of undo it all. So, um, yeah, so super dyslexic, now parent to, to two, potentially three super dyslexic children. Um, I was lucky to be brought up in an incredibly dyslexic positive household my dad's dyslexic my brother's dyslexic my poor mother dealing with us all um uh, and so it has it's got lots of downsides but the upsides are so totally worth it um but does mean i can't recommend a book no that's fine I, liz this has been better than a book recommendation because it just you know the fact that you've been able to kind of speak so openly and humorously about the subject and that's going to help more people than a, than reading a book, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you if you have somebody who's dyslexic who who's joining your team, or you're going to be working with them, like there's a lot of resources um, from the Dyslexia Association that can talk to you about managing somebody with dyslexia or working with somebody with dyslexia. And that really helps. Like it's a neuro difference, uh, the same as any other. So so get yourself clued up, work out what the plus sides are, um, and 
adapt as best as possible. I, I wouldn't change it. It doesn't make life easy, but it certainly makes it more interesting. I definitely couldn't do my job if I wasn't dyslexic. No chance. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Liz. We will, again, we will pop all of the links to the Dyslexia Association in the show notes as well. So if you haven't ever gone and looked at their website, go and browse it. I'm sure there's a lot of things on there that will be able to support um, your teams. Liz, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you. Wishing you all the best of luck as you head into the winter months. And um, I'll check back in on you in a few months and see how it's all going, if that's okay. I I would love that. And you must come in and have a coffee. And anybody else who who wants to come in and abuse my brilliant coffee shop, um, then just uh, send me a message on Twitter. And um, yeah, everyone's welcome. The more people I can show my museum to, the happier I am. Uh, well, you heard it there, folks. Everyone needs to head over. And please, uh, I, I know we did mention it earlier, but don't steal anything from the gift shop. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.